Hello, and welcome to Color Code, a podcast about race in Canada by the Globe and Mail. I'm Hannah Sung. And I'm Denise Balkasoon. Today's episode is called Too Legit, and it's about how issues of race become legitimate. Right. So uh, what do we mean by legitimate? I guess when we first started brainstorming this topic, we were just inspired by the idea of how people talk about race a lot on Twitter. But then does that translate into what we're seeing in mainstream media? Does it square with what we learned in school? Right. So I think to me, legitimate means valued. It means widely acknowledged as, if not true, at least something worth considering and discussing. What does legitimate mean to you? Legitimate to me means that it is, again, acknowledged. That's a good word. Acknowledged by institutions and the mainstream, you know, the media, uh, the school system, the government, that's what it means to be legit. Mm-hmm. When I think about my grade school education, I learned that the earth and the solar system, you know, kind of revolves around the sun. Imagine if we could not agree on that, what we would talk about when we're talking about, you know, the moon in the sky. We're trying to explain that to our kids. So the idea that we live in a solar system is legit. <laughs> I learned it. Although Pluto is not a planet. Too bad. <laughs> we, we sometimes have to relearn things that we learned as kids. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what it feels like talking about race sometimes is that what I'm standing on is moving all the time mm-hmm. because we don't have a collective agreement in terms of, you know, what, what are the basic facts. I think investigating the idea of what Canada as a country has decided is legitimate and how that is constantly changing is is pretty interesting. Um, you and I have both said, for example, there are parts of Canadian history that we didn't learn in school, that maybe our kids will learn in school, but we ourselves only learned as adults. And so for me, residential schools would be one of those things. That's something I definitely only learned as an adult is part of Canada's history. And I guess it was interesting in real time to see that become legitimate because obviously for Indigenous people in Canada, that was a legitimate thing to think about and consider for decades. But for mainstream Canada, it's a very new thing to say, yes, this is a thing we all acknowledge and now we'll figure out how we talk about it. I think a lot of it has to do with connection because imagine if if being sent to a residential school was part of your personal history and you were trying to convey that story to someone else, but they had never heard of the residential school system or the government had never said to Canadians, you know, we apologize for this being, you know, a stain on our history. Well, would you believe the story this person was telling? It might seem so truly unbelievable. I think personal narrative is so important But if we can't connect it up to the institutions that, you know, legitimize these personal stories, then it's too easy to dismiss. So when we talk about these buried pieces of race history for Canada, you know, unearthing that history and making it part of the public record, that's never by accident. When it does happen, it's due to the hard work of individuals who make it happen. So I spoke to one of those individuals for this episode Sylvia D. Hamilton is a professor and a filmmaker in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And one of her films is called The Little Black Schoolhouse, which outlines the history of racially segregated schools in Canada, especially in her home province. Our first segregated school was here in the 1780s. Our last was here too. 
It didn't close until 1983. Racially segregated schools in Canada. Yeah, that's right. And that's another bit of Canadian history that I personally did not know, that I did not learn in school. But Sylvia knew because she went to one herself. We, we call these things um, secrets in the country, though not secrets to people of African descent, um, like myself, who went to a segregated school. The, um, the creation of, of segregated schools, particularly in Nova Scotia and Ontario, is a direct result of the, the, the enslavement of African people and the attitudes that were attached to that. Yes, you heard right. Slavery in Canada. There were up to 5,000 slaves in different parts of Canada, most of them Indigenous and some of them Black. And the prevailing attitude of uh, white supremacy, which um, was articulated by Prime Minister Mackenzie King when he said that this was a white man's country. Quick history tip. William Lyon Mackenzie King was our Prime Minister for three terms between 1921 to 1948, and it wasn't a slip of the tongue when he called Canada a, quote, white man's country. He wrote it in a report for the government in 1908 when he was Deputy Minister and Head of the Department of Labor. In the village that I grew up in and throughout Nova Scotia, there are small rural villages of, of uh, black communities. And um, I went to a segregated school uh, for the first three years of my, my life. And my mom, uh, the late Dr. Marie Hamilton, was a, a school teacher and taught in, in segregated schools in, um, in Nova Scotia. The official record. What becomes the official record? And why do you think the stories that you're interested why did they get left out, or how did they get left out? Um, some of the why is because of who has created the curriculum, you know, who, who creates the educational curriculum, um, and then who writes the history books. Um, if at the university level you're taking, you know, Canadian history course, and it's not in the books there, you come out, you become a school teacher, you go into the education system, it then replicates itself. And these kinds of stories are part of our national legacy, but it's the, it's the denial of certain parts of the history that is really the, the problem. So when events happen they all appear as if they're what I call these isolated, I call it the isolated incident theory. The isolated incident theory? The isolated incident theory. Oh, that's an isolated incident. Well, that's an isolated incident. And so it's completely ahistorical. So then there's no connection with seeing the, the doctrine of white supremacy that the prime minister articulated, how that rolls down into... Um, discrimination and, and anti-black racism when um, events happened, such as uh, a few years ago, uh, people having KKK costumes in Ontario and different, one was at a Legion Halloween contest or something, and where does that come from? And is there no understanding of the history of even the KKK in Canada? Or this whole thing that flares up every, you know, year with the people in blackface, you know, in, in Quebec. Or during the, um, the hockey game the other year where people were putting blackface on supposedly to cheer on P.K. Subban. All of this stuff comes out of particular attitudes and, and legacies, but it's always treated as if they're these isolated incidents not connected to anything. 
you know, when I think about um, the legacy of resistance, you know, my mind goes back to um, in Chatham, Ontario in like 1891, where um, the black parents were taking direct action um, against the local school board that were trying to segregate their black children. Then I think about, um, you know, parents out west, the Chinese parents out west who pulled their students out of school in the 1920s because of, of racism and, and segregation. Do people get, ever get upset when they hear the things that you have to say about Canada's history? Yeah, <laughs> me too. It depends on the audience, you know. If it's a racially mixed audience, people will come up after it and, and have these conversations about similar experiences of racism. And then I, I have had people who, um, European background, who have a difficult time. And, and sometimes, you know, the conversation is, well, you know, we can't be blamed for what our, our you know, came before us, and, and why are you making me feel guilty? And, you know, that kind of response, which I think it speaks to um, the lack of self-introspection and that they've learned a story that is, is incomplete. And then for others of European background, you know, I just had a recent film screening of The Little Black Schoolhouse, and, and there were people who came up and were, were really um, grateful for having seen the film and, and stories that they had never heard of, and, and that it was very important for them because they, they said they went they were going away with knowledge that they did not have before. So I hope that that would be most people's reaction when, you know, they hear a bit of Canadian history that they didn't know. I mean, even if there's a painful moment and maybe a moment of, am I implicated in this? For myself, I just, I want to know everything about Canada and Canada's history. And so I hope that's most people's reaction in the end. Totally. And, you know, that's what I really loved about her saying the quote, isolated incident theory, because as soon as she said those words, like, you know, that did strike me, the truth of those words struck me, right? And if I can just say one thing that Sylvia and I spoke about that really stood out for me is she says, when we don't know our race history, we also don't know our race heroes. Um, And she, she talks about some action by black parents and by Chinese parents against segregated schools. And, you know, those are things that I want to know about and that I want to be proud of and to form the fabric of civil rights activism in Canada as well. And so uh, not everything about race history has to necessarily always be negative. There are all these people that have been pushing back against it, and I'd like to know about them as well. Mm -hmm, For sure. Just before we move on from Sylvia's story, uh, I'd like to play a bit of our conversation that we haven't heard yet. So Sylvia was born in Nova Scotia in a town called Beachville. It was a small community that was founded by Black people who had escaped slavery. So we were going through this, and I just wanted to make sure that I understood her family history. And you you were related to those former slaves, or you are related to those former slaves. Yeah, I, I call people who were enslaved enslaved. Okay. So, yes, they might... It's hard to catch, because she's so matter-of-fact about it. Sylvia obviously has said this before, and she does not like the word slave. She prefers the word enslaved. That was a very interesting exchange to listen in on. What were you thinking? You know, I felt a little bit sheepish for a minute. Like, 
that I was being corrected. And she's a professor, so she was very, like, teacherly in correcting me. And then it immediately became clear to me that she changed my entire perspective on thinking about slavery and the people. I mean, I believe that I believed that slaves were people, but just that word, that way of making it a verb, that slavery was something that happened to human beings, just in the change of one word, I I thought it was pretty phenomenal. Yeah, so it's interesting because while she's schooling us on what it is like to have a personal history, i.e. having gone to a segregated school that, that most Canadians don't know about, and then having to disseminate that knowledge through a documentary that she makes and through her work as a professor and all that kind of thing, but also it can become as granular as just teaching you the difference between one the usage of one word versus another and, and, and how powerful that can be. Absolutely. And I think we're talking about legitimacy today. And part of it is about words that we use and the words that we say are okay to use. Mm -hmm. So words, I mean, I think it's safe to say that you and I both love words. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan. I'm a fan of words. (laughs) Well, why don't we do a quick list of words and define them for what we're about to get into next? All right. This is a list of words taken from AV or African American Vernacular English, which is a pretty serious way to say it. But, you know, uh, Black American dialects are often tricky because on one hand, they have in the past been seen as too slangy to be taken seriously, and yet they continue to draw accusations of cultural appropriation if people use them who aren't Black. Yeah, and I'm not even sure what AV encompasses in its totality, but the list that we're about to define really strike me as young people's words, like it seems like a generational thing here. So just going to start off with lit. It's an adjective. It can mean intoxicated, but it most likely means very cool. And I'm just going to go through a whole list now, Denise. Turnt, which is another word I mentioned, pretty much means the same thing, intoxicated or very cool. Slay means doing something really, really well. On fleek means to be perfect or on top of your game. Woke is to be aware, especially as it pertains to race and social justice. Hannah and I used to be lit, but we are now moms. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so where'd you get the definition of those words? I'm paraphrasing a bunch of definitions that I found at urbandictionary.com. And I'll define one, and this comes from the Oxford English Dictionary. Microaggression is a statement, action, or incident regarded as an instance of indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group. So basically, implicit biases that come out at inopportune times. So we needed to agree on those definitions because of what we're doing next. That's right. We invited two people who also love words, and they talk about race all the time, but in very different settings. The first is Naila Kalita May. She is a professor at the University of Waterloo. She teaches a class called Race, Gender, and Performance. And one of the most controversial aspects of her course is that she talks a lot and asks her students to think a lot about Beyonce. And it was fascinating, right, that there was a lot of pushback. Some folks were really upset that an African-American woman who's extraordinarily accomplished and undeniably relevant would be studied in a theater and performance unit or pro- program at, at a university level. I think I should transfer to University of Waterloo. That sounds amazing. Yes. <laughs> we also invited Celeste Yim to be a part of our conversation. She's a comedian based here in Toronto. And I found out when I met her that she's a student at the University of Toronto at the same college that I went to, which is Trinity College, and I mention that because it comes up later in our conversation. 
So we asked Naila and Celeste to meet us at a different book list, which is a bookstore in Toronto that specializes in work by and for the African and Caribbean diaspora. Okay, so this is what we're doing today. We're going to play a game. We're calling it Love It or Lose It. We've got a list of words and a buzzer and a bell. So here's a buzzer. Very long buzzer. <laughs> and a bell. And uh, Denise is going to give you a word or a phrase. And all these words and phrases are kind of race-related. And then you can hit the buzzer if you hate it. You can hit the bell if you love it. Cool? Mm-hmm. Sounds good. All right. Is this like a, is it a race? <laughs> like some kind of, there's no competition. Oh, right. That's a good question. <laughs> I asked before we recorded, like, who, how do you win? <laughs> oh, my. You win when we solve racism. <laughs> oh. oh, great. Oh, don't to we death. All. We're going to be yeah. here forever. <laughs> great. That's exciting. I can't wait. I'm excited. <laughs> Word number one, people of color or women of color. Oh, what? That's Naila buzzing in on the long right. buzzer. I'm so surprised. What's your thought? So I use, the, I use both because I think of language as currency. So I'm just trying to kind of make a transaction and be understood. So I definitely use people of color, women of color. Here's why I could lose that term. Because then who's just the person? If I identify as a person of color, who gets to just identify as person? It's the white people who get to just be people. Wow, that's so interesting. I feel that in using women of color, when I, when I use it for myself especially, um, it is to combat uh, that baseline level of being a person as to, you know, I talk about it so much, I wonder if this is on the list, but um, with my friends, like, just like such a common microaggression of being like, oh, I don't see color. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just, I guess it depends on the context and who is using it. So I guess if I'm using it for myself, I'd like it. But then if someone were to use it to define me, that feels, uh, I guess, um, more aggressive, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think too, I'm also starting to see online there's been some contention around like that term as well. That person of color or people of color kind of puts us in a group that all kinds of different ethnicities and races in a group in a way that doesn't allow us to address our specific points or like our specific um, positionalities and experiences of discrimination. Right. It does feel like a very broad brush. Yeah. And it's a brush that captures everybody except the most privileged group of people in North America. Listen, we'll just say that people of color is kind of in the same bucket as visible minority and racialized. Um, I also, I personally don't like the word racialized because I feel like it's a word that's done to me. Racialized is a little too, I don't know, academic or not everyone understands it. Um, But for me, it's maybe the truest term because it speaks to the fact that race is something that is made up, that as humans we've all decided we're going to go along with it or we're forced to go along with it. It's true, it's true. If, if racism is about denying who you are as an individual and instead kind of like placing this caste system upon you, it's been foisted on you. So maybe that's what I don't like about the word racialized because I feel like it happened to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't racialize myself, you know? <laughs> racialize isn't an active right. verb, I feel right. like. It's this passive thing that happened. So. Strangely, I find myself agreeing with you now, Denise. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Shall we move on to a little bit of slang then? Yeah. Okay, let's start with woke. Stay woke. Who wants to take this one? Buzzer or bell? (laughs) Well, I feel I don't use it, so buzzer, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. 
Um, but you live on the internet. I mean, you. Yeah, so that's my home. <laughs> <laughs> so you you obviously understand what it means to be woke, right. but you don't use the word. Why? There are many slang words, especially like. Uh, there's so many easy ones like getting turned or uh, slay even um, that feel like for young black people and not for me to use. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about like make like av like especially especially on the internet. So I've never heard that term av. Oh really? Yeah. So it's African American vernacular English, right? So it's all these terms like lit is like a, a big one. What are other? I, I don't know. I'm blanking on. Yeah. I don't know. Like, well, was yeah. Fleek, I think, is a great example. Oh, yeah. Because Fleek came in and people just yes. got mad at how quickly it got taken out. Right, right. Right. And people, you know, like, I think a lot of people in like the teen community on the internet were like, oh gosh, like Teen Vogue is using it. Like, then it's over. Yeah. Or they Vanity die. Fair, it's done. You it's know? done. I think maybe part of why this conversation is coming up right now is that in the past, it would be. A much slower process for any type of subculture, including African American slang, right, to reach greater audiences, like right. Vanity Fair. Yeah, but now, like yeah. Fleek being a good example, like the the t- the pickup and the you know bell curve is so fast that it loses its feeling of you know community and specialness right. so fast that it's like stop it, just stop it. Like, <laughs> is there a time? limit or a kind of, you know, an expiration date to when the appropriation ends and when it yeah. becomes... The Appropriation Act. <laughs> <laughs> now, this might that sound facetious, but I, I, really, I really mean this because, sure. you know, if we look at Black American culture, yeah. all of our pop culture pretty much comes from, like, something yeah. that was originally a Black right. cultural right. thing. And, you know, rock jazz, blues, and so much, and hip-hop, obviously. And it all comes from, like, you know, these origins. And so then at what point, Sure. I don't know, does time right. make a difference? Yeah. I don't know what it is, but mm. I'm pretty sure it's not for me to decide. Mm-hmm. Right. And I worry about, too, like, the discussion of, um, you know, legitimacy of language over time and cultural appropriation, um, because I feel that I often see that discussion as, like, sort of, like, a justification for mm-hmm. people when, when they're trying to trying to uh, legitimize uh, their appropriations of things. So in context, I think, yeah, temporally is like hugely important. Can we go into when the Celeste said? Yeah. Okay, so Celeste earlier said microaggression. Oh. I mean, yeah, I, I'll use it. <laughs> Love it. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like also people don't know what microaggressions are. Yeah, so That's what's your, what's your like, quick definition? Yeah. Ugh, oh, my gosh. I feel like microaggressions feel like um, casual, offensive <laughs> comments or questions from, I don't want to say white people because that's not fair, I don't think, from uninformed people um, specifically about um, minority language. Is that, did that, did I do it? <laughs> the minority language part, I don't, yeah, it doesn't resonate Because I guess me. I don't want to just talk about racial because I feel like um, many of my queer friends talk about microaggressions um, against them and I think it's so, so easy. Um, to to use queer microaggressions, so like as a means of of oppression or kind of yeah. discrimination, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I think right. it's definitely action. So I'm right. thinking of like it's like being at a meeting, 
and being one of the minoritized people at the meeting and watching like who speaks and who feels that they can take up tons of room and who speaks over you when you attempt to speak. Can you give us a specific example that stands out in your memory of personally experiencing a microaggression? Mm -hmm. Um, So being like, uh, where are you really from? Um, He's like, I'm from North Toronto. (laughs) We talked about it. Um, I feel like, yeah, that's so interesting because, yeah, again, it's like this expectation from any audience, anyone I'm talking to. It's like, uh, yeah, you're going to reference the fact that you are Asian, you're, you're Korean. Um, and that's so interesting because I feel like there's so many parts of, you know, being Korean that I don't identify with. I don't speak Korean and I've never been to Korea. Um, but still, because I look Korean, there's an expectation. So even asking that um, makes assumptions about who I am based on how I look uh, that are just... Uh, not correct. So that feels like a, a one, a pretty obvious, easy one. What about you, Naila? So I, I think that an example of a microaggression is asking a person who isn't white for a personal example. I really do. Uh-huh. Because there's a way in which, particularly as a black woman, because there's an expectation that we are feeling so much and are going to share at will. Mm-hmm and that we are supposed to be able to perform our personal lives at a whim, mm-hmm. right? And so, so when the, I ask you that, are you mm-hmm. mad at me? Uh, I mean, it takes a lot to get me mad because of my personal disposition. But yeah, I'm like, ugh. Like, not to make this personal. <laughs> yeah, but the, so the reaction is like, yeah, the expectation that I'm gonna share my personal life or how I feel, that that's not private that I'm in a public space right, having right. a conversation about race in a public capacity for the Globe and Mail, and that I should, in this, within this context, speak about my personal life right. um, as a response to a question as opposed to evoking it because I want to. Mm-hmm. Right? That that decision to be personal isn't coming from me, but it's an expectation that it can be asked of me. I'm often asked in public context when I've revealed nothing that's private or very little that's private mm-hmm. to speak from about my private personal life, to right. give an example, right? To not only live racism every day, but then to have to give examples of racism, to not only live sexism <laughs> and heteronormativity, but have to give examples of that as well and like to relive that in the retelling of it mm-hmm. so that it can be consumed by other people, right? right? That there is... Um, that the, that the re-articulation of ways in which we are um, oppressed and discriminated against, many argue, is a, a re-traumatizing. Mm-hmm. So to have to kind of traumatize myself on some small level um, in order to communicate what I understand and many scholars, activists, and every, you know, folks who work in a numerous profession understand as fact. Like, we understand racism as fact. I experience that as, as an example of microaggression. So I push back against that by saying, I'm not going to talk about my private personal example if I don't feel like it. Like, I'll pass on that question because I don't see that being asked of, of people who are understood to occupy a particular class, a particular sexuality, and a particular gender presentation. Right? So those folks aren't... Um, in public conversations, they're not interviewed and asked to kind of give an example of how they experience or enjoy their white upper class <laughs> male heteronormative privilege. Mm-hmm. You know? 
And I guess that's specifically why I asked for an example, and I'm really sorry if it um, upset you. I, um, as an interviewer, I want to talk about my examples of microaggression in my right. own life, but I need to ask my guests first. Um, so uh, I will say that I, I'm kind of making the assumption that there hopefully are people listening to our podcast who um, are listening for an education and maybe don't identify as having ever experienced a microaggression. And so that's why I wanted right. a, an example. I remember being at a, a wine and cheese at Trinity College. I'm just going to say it since you're a student there as well. And I was a student there a million years ago. And, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing where student leaders go and it's like, you know, like older alumni, like yeah. from a yes. different era. Right. Um, and, the, and the students are kind of unleashed into that uh, setting in order to like liven it up a bit. And, um, and we go for the free sherry. And this woman started talking to me about her Japanese exchange student. And so, you know, I listened for a long time. And then I realized the story is going on for a long time. Mm -hmm. So just to, you know, engage, I said, oh, that's great. You know, when did they get here? And she said, oh, no, no, this was 30 years ago. And I just, that was one of my first examples of like, holy expletive here. You interact with so few right. people of You're color like, that when I stand me. in front of you to talk about, hey, this is what life at Trinity is like right. now, you're evoking a memory from 30, 30 yeah. years right. ago. Right. And, and you're not asking me about, like, how's school going? <laughs> you're talking to me about, you know. And you just search deep for that memory. Like, that not deep. Not... not deep for her because that was maybe the last experience the last she had experience. with somebody right. who looked like me. Right. But really couldn't be more different because I, uh, you know. You're not Japanese. <laughs> well, I'm not an exchange student. I'm, you know. <laughs> from Canada. I was an English major, actually. <laughs> so, um. Wow, that that was very interesting in terms of like microaggression. The word right. micro is built right into it, but you can see actually how like deep the emotional response gets to a microaggression, I believe. We put this on the list, white supremacy. And the reason why we put that on the list is because it's a term that I think people are, um, when they're having race discussions online, are maybe um, okay with using. Right. But spoken, it's hard to say white supremacy in certain, in, in certain companies. So um, white supremacy, buzzer or bell? For me, increasingly, it's not about white people. It's about whiteness, like, right. and the upholding okay. of whiteness mm -hmm. that anybody can do. And how do you define whiteness? For me, whiteness and white supremacy are interlocked. Like, it's a notion of it of of it being superior. Um, and so, that's why I think that you can have someone who isn't white subscribe to white supremacy and like uphold white supremacy in particular kinds, right. like whiteness as a privileged space in particular kinds of ways. So yeah, white supremacy has its limitations. People shut down when you use that face-to-face. Yeah. -face. Like right, that feels like really... Folks, like, because they think KKK. Sure. I experiment in my classroom a lot with how to have these uh, complex conversations with my students and which, who are predominantly white and which words and terms 
uh, they shut down with and which ones are able to kind of mobilize and then use to be self-reflective and think critically about their own experiences and how they view people. And so um, whiteness has been one that's been they've been able to work with. Because uh, I have students who've never, who, you know, who will be having revelatory moments of saying, like, I, I just never you know, said that I was white before. I've never been called to say that I'm white. So for yeah. that community, whiteness has been more helpful than white like people. white supremacy for white people. Right. But do you think that... And even actually for non-white people, too, right. whiteness. But is, that, is, not, is that not a good... Is it good or bad to be associating yourself with it? Because there's there's this like one side where it's like, okay, well, I'm gonna, uh, you know, like use like some, whatever white powers that I have. Like I speak English, whatever. The term like whiteness seems pretty close to like whitewashed, which I feel like is buzzer, <laughs> a buzzer where we're just like, um, there's like this expectation, like because I feel like when people are like, oh, you're so whitewashed, like that's like this negative thing, and that feels like so unfair, where it's like, oh, you, uh, you've asked me, world, to be as white as I can be, and then uh, to call me out on that as if it's something that I haven't, I'm not able to fully um, become is so frustrating. <laughs> so so I don't know. Do you mean like the idea of like, being a banana. Yeah, an Oreo, right, yeah. Um, it's like, that's so, it's so... Twinkie. Twinkie. Yes, Twinkie. Like, that feels like, so, I don't know if whiteness for me feels like something I could claim as being like, okay, well, at least I have this, that's my whiteness. That's like, it feels like uh, limiting for me um, in the way that whitewash does. It's like, how are you going to get mad at me for, are you going to, like, make fun of me for being... Um, this much white, this amount of white. <laughs> How am I going to expend my currency and um, on this whiteness, but then not be able to buy into the whole idea? That's like so difficult. <laughs> right? How unfair. Well, I hate to end on the note of unfair, but maybe that's a, the right place to end for this conversation. So yeah, ending on that note of it being unfair. <laughs> what are you going to do? Still a lot of fun. I thought mm. that was fun. It was fun because I think Celeste and Ayla are, as we said, people who think about the words they use very carefully. And it was interesting to unpack that a bit and also realize that we all had very different opinions at different times about the words. Yeah. And, you know, it. I guess we all have different opinions, but I have more questions than I do opinions, I think. Mm -hmm. Like, I refer to the dictionary all the time. There's no satisfactory kind of definitive terms for a lot of these words that are in flux. Like, for example, the AV that we talked about, or even, you know, when we talked about microaggressions, like that got pretty heated. I don't know if you could tell in the moment, Denise, but the reason why I asked Naila if she was mad at me was because her facial expression was speaking volumes to me. I just really wanted to ask her about that for it to be an honest moment. And it was very honest, like maybe too honest for my taste in the moment because I became quite uncomfortable. And I don't know if you can hear that, but um, after, you know, going over that exchange in my mind for an entire weekend, when I came out the other side, I thought, wow, I think this is what it feels like to be white and to be fearful of talking about race for the fear of being rebuked. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, you know, someone might say to you, you don't know how it feels, so don't even broach it, you know? And I don't know if that's what Naila meant to do or say, but it really opened a window for me 
um, into a new kind of understanding because I just did not ever imagine what that would feel like until um, I felt it. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm getting a little bit obsessed with the idea of fragility um, for people who have any kind of privilege, you know, so there can be male fragility. Um, There's a professor named Robin D'Angelo who wrote a paper in 2011 called White Fragility, and she makes a lot of excellent points, but she talks about the idea of stamina, talking about race and talking about things that are uncomfortable. And she says that because they are often in environments where they are the majority or race is unspoken, white people don't have a chance to develop stamina for conversations about race and for those uncomfortable conversations. Um, And I think that you were clearly uncomfortable talking to Naila, but you didn't shut her down. And you sort of dealt with your interaction with her and then sort of moved on without shutting her down. And I think that is a sign of stamina because the fact is we said from the beginning when we were conceiving this podcast that the conversations would be uncomfortable. And so, you know, when Sylvia said, I don't say slave, I say enslaved, you know, and I felt that I had said the wrong thing, I think it's a sign of my own stamina that I didn't immediately say, oh, sorry, oh, oh, you know, and like I just let her continue. Mm -hmm. If you think about stamina in that way, it's like a different kind of show of strength because sometimes people see things in terms of conflict or like a a show of strength is to just assert yourself. When Naila was saying to me that she felt that my, the act of my asking her this was aggressive or a microaggression in and of itself, you know, I could have had a hundred different responses for why that wasn't true, you know, or why that's not what I meant when, in fact, your actions not matching what you mean on the inside is exactly the definition of a microaggression. So she, she is right in that way, but it's not about being right and wrong, right? And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is just the, the act of listening and what that does for someone. Mm-hmm. Listening is probably one of the greatest gifts you can give to lending legitimacy to something, for sure. This week's episode was produced by us, Hannah Sung and Denise Balkasun, as well as editor Sean Liliani. Our technical producer is Timothy Moore, and our senior producer is Kevin Sue. Special thanks to Kasia Mihailowicz, who was a consulting producer on this episode and for this series. If you enjoyed this episode of Color Code, rate and review it on iTunes, subscribe, share it with a friend, and tell us what you think. Do you love or hate the words racialized, microaggression, or getting lit? And did you yourself know about our history of segregation and slavery? Record a voice memo and email it to us at colorcode at globeandmail.com. We would like to thank Ita and all the staff at A Different Booklist. You can find them at adifferentbooklist.com. As well, we want to thank all of our guests, including Naila Kalita May, Celeste Yim, and Sylvia D. Hamilton. Special thanks to Sylvia for usage of bits from her documentary film, The Little Black Schoolhouse. Our theme music is by Bonjay. You can find them at bonjay.net. You can look us up on Twitter. I'm at Balkasun. And I'm at Hannah Sung. And next week's episode is The Only One. What is it like being the only racialized person in your small town? The answers might surprise you. Thanks so much for listening to Color Code.